This week on the pod, you have yourself a Joker sandwich. We are going to be talking about, first and foremost, what we thought about the film, what we enjoyed, what we may think could have some areas for improvement, but obviously all spoiler-free. We're then going to go into your fill-in of news, general entertainment. We've got a feature, our top five Will Smith movies in celebration of Will vs. Will in Gemini Man, and we'll conclude it all off with a spoiler special about Joker. Guess what? We talk a lot about Joaquin Phoenix. In a cloud where there are already too many film podcasts, you have to ask yourself, what's the harm in one more? Two ordinary men armed with unqualified opinions. Talk Filmy to Me. Hello, welcome to the Talk Filmy to Me podcast, the film podcast about news, entertainment, general pop culture. I am your host, my name is Adam Flint. Joining me on the pod is a triple threat. He is a podcaster, he's done video games, he's a, he's an artist as well. He was on a podcast called Verbal Ramblers a few years ago <laughs> and I said, John, come over here and give me a help with this filmy stuff. He's also made video games like Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero 2, DJ Hero, but most importantly, you can get his album Lucky Dust with his West End performing wife, Jamie as well. John Descamento, how are you doing, pal? Amazing. Yeah, I'm good. I, I think I owe you about £6.50 for that plug there. That was very, very kind of you. Um, and Flinty, you also have quite an illustrious past. Is this your first podcast? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a microphone. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need, baby. Everyone's doing it. What have you been watching recently? The Expanse. The Expanse, which is a sci-fi uh, futuristic 200 years in the future where we've colonised Mars and like the asteroid belt and Earth, obviously. And it's, they're, you know, they're about to go to war. But uh, I've literally just started it because I've been recommended it quite highly. Um, and it looks really interesting. So, But I haven't heard much about it. It's been going for like three or four seasons now so it's kind of like under the radar but definitely uh I'll, I'll keep you updated with how i go with that what about you we'll have a regular segment of john's expanse mm. minute <laughs> and you can just give us a hot take on, on where you're at on that um, so yesterday uh, big mouth season three dropped on netflix and i have binge watched about seven episodes from it <laughs> I, I generally love that show uh, i know some people are like eh, you can, i can take it or leave it but um it's not as good as previous seasons only because you come to expect so much from this sort of stuff now right once you once you get lured in and you actually really enjoy it obviously you then have high expectations so it's hard to match that and they seem to be ending every episode on a big musical number. It's almost like the creators are like, oh, we, we have a bit of fun writing songs and stuff. And it's just like, a, I don't know, it feels a bit formulaic and other than that. But no, I'm really, really enjoying that. Um, we've had a couple of screeners this week. Uh, we're obviously talking about Joker quite a bit in the next hour or so. Uh, we went and saw Gemini Man as well. Uh, we can only give reactions right as of now as opposed to full review so we'll get the full review the following week but that's led into our feature which we're going to talk about later on about uh, top fives we're going to talk about big will king of the hill and uh, our five favorite movies from that but john i've literally so i went and saw joker on monday yeah and i've been sitting in the office like because <laughs> i really want to talk about it and uh, i was just like john please go see this go to see this now go see this now go see this why, why haven't you seen this now and then john you've gone to see it so let's fuck it let's get on it first review okay. joker i have some bad news for you <laughs> this is the last time we'll be meeting you don't listen do you you just ask the same questions every week how's your job are you having any negative thoughts? 
I have are negative thoughts. Joker started out life, it started out in many uh, incarnations actually. When we first heard this, we were like, do we really need this film? Should it exist? And then we heard that Todd Phillips, the guy who's made films like Road Trip, uh, the Hangover movies, to name but a few. He was the guy going to be writing and directing this, and we're like, oh, really? I don't really need an origin story for this guy. And, you know, just go through this podcast, and you'll hear several times that I have, uh, I've basically panned the idea of this film. Like, why do we need that? Um, but then all of a sudden, Scorsese was involved as a producer, and we're like, oh, why is he? Why is he involved in this? This is interesting. And then Whacking Phoenix got cast, and John. Uh, I know you're not a comic book guy, but when Joaquin Phoenix puts his name to something, your favourite actor, that's obviously a good sign, right? Yeah. And now, lo and behold, here we are. Um, this is the film about Arthur Fleck. He, this film is set in, I think, the early 80s. Uh, essentially, this is about a man who is a outcast of society, suffering, suffering from mental health issues. Uh, society is letting him down. He has a terminally ill mother and... It's how he spirals and copes with the way the world has treated him in a way which naturally uh, <laughs> he just decides to put on clown makeup and start doing some really horrible things. Um, but look, if you know Batman, you know there is a bunch of origin stories to this. This is done in such a kind of a grim, cautious tale, but this is yeah, there's no heroes in this. Uh, John, first of all, what is your opinion of this movie? Oh, I was really torn. Me and my wife watched it last night, opening night, packed cinema. Uh, it's not the kind of film that requires a packed cinema. Um, it's just very unsettling. Uh, it's a it's a tough watch to be honest. Um, but I'm, I appreciate how well it's done, but I yeah we found it quite tough, especially my wife. But I I did on the whole I really enjoyed this movie and Joaquin Phoenix. I'm convinced is the best actor of his generation. Mm. A lot of people have brushed up with his performance in this, saying that he's done a lot of good stuff here, but there's something not quite right, which I was I was a bit quite shocked to, to hear all that. I agree with you. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. He transforms his body in particular for this movie. Like he he loses a bunch of weight and he kind of there's scenes where he's sitting there reading or whenever he's on his own and they're like showing the scars of of his life and the scars of of living this the way he does and um yeah it's just this the way he moves he contorts his body there's some really elegant things about this so essentially the main narrative point that drives through this film is that there's a tv show that him that uh, Arthur Fleck and his mum enjoy watching. It's called the the Tonight Show with Murray, who's a character played by no, no less than Robert De Niro, and it's essentially that's the only sort of thing they've got to look forward to. And then an event transpires, which means that Arthur Fleck is actually going to be on the show at some point. And that's that's basically kind of like the the narrative that drives through. But he goes through his own journey of madness. He goes through his own journey of discovery. You find out about a, a lot about Arthur in a way that you didn't think you'd find out in this film. Uh, you find out kind of his coping mechanisms. And what I find fascinating was Arthur's coping mechanism for social anxiety or or just any form of. Um, any form of uncomfortableness, it results in an uncontrollable laughter in a very much like a <laughs> you know, jokery sort of way. And I thought that was executed to perfection. The way that was in that film was it's just so good, in my opinion. I loved it. It was so uncomfortable, wasn't it? Because uh, there's nothing more unsettling than someone laughing hysterically at 
it's a really inappropriate time. Uh, and that's sort of the foundation of his whole character, right? But yeah, it's, I mean, considering how unsettling and psychologically challenging this movie is, I can't believe it's a 15. I really expected it to be an 18. I understand it's not mm. exactly Tarantino level gore, but yeah, I just found it so unsettling. I, I, I'm really surprised it's not an 18. Did you think that at all? Uh, yeah, but I think there's kind of like... Because essentially these sensors, how they do the certificates, it's not necessarily interpretation. It's more like a checkbox activity. So there's certain things you can get away with up to a certain point, and that's not necessarily themed per se. So like, as long as you don't have a decapitation and you don't have like a penetrative sex scene, or if you don't drop the C-bomb, you can pretty much get under like like the 18 mark pretty easily. Although, like you say, the theme... The, the, so let's talk about that for a moment. This doesn't necessarily focus on the gore too much. As you say, yes, there is gore in this film, but it's very much about the act of getting to that point, the boiling point. Um, if you are into your Batman lore, this fucks with your head a little bit because this is this film is positioned as an elseworld a this is not part of the canon of movies that are out there at the moment or that will be out there in the future this is a standalone thing because we just found this compelling story wants to tell very much in the vein of taxi driver the king of comedy taking inspiration from the comics but if i had to say any one it's probably a killing joke it takes the most from in the terms of Arthur, we haven't even mentioned this part yet, Arthur is an aspiring comedian and the it's basically he's not very good but it's and part of the reason why he transcends and tries to cope in the way that he does uh, but uh, yeah, I don't want to go into spoiler territory, I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, to dice the, go through the dicey <laughs> conversation from that, we will be doing a spoiler bit at the end of this podcast so me and John will go really spoilerific from that part but we'll try and keep it open at the moment so in terms of the other cast we've got Robert De Niro I thought he was charming as fuck in this I've got to be honest, like when his character, when he just comes out, just goes, that's life, and just <laughs> does his spiel. I I loved it. I thought it was having a great time with it. There was something, yeah, there was something really uh, interesting about it being set in that sort of late 70s, early 80s. Uh, really non-politically correct jokes. Um, maybe not particularly funny by today's standards as well. Uh, but it was, that, that was really interesting. But, you know, late night hosts have always been like such a standpoint in America and that I found that kind of really fascinating but I think De Niro does a good job but it's definitely not like a performance that an Alec Baldwin or many many other actors could do I think it's more like it's just a really awesome kind of reference to King of Comedy because obviously De Niro played you know exactly. played the Joker character trying to aspire on to the late night show in that and now he is you know, it's kind of hilarious that he is now the late night host. Yeah, definitely. Um, I thought thought Zazie Beetz was interesting in this film. When I first heard she was cast, a lot of people were just like, oh, she's going to be a potential love interest and, and that's it. And it's just like, there's a massive age difference between them. Like, this, like, it's weird. And the way they deal with this I think it's just done in an inspired way. Like I say, we'll talk about that more in the in the spoiler part at the end. But I thought she didn't have much to chew on. It's more about the the purpose of her character and the things that that enables as a story plot device 
during that film I thought was fascinating. Um, I thought the cinematography of this film is beautiful. I know a lot of critics that have come out of this film have said that it was very pretentious and it was trying to be very artsy. I think you're only saying that because it's Todd Phillips. If it actually was Scorsese or, or a director you love, you probably would have been fucking sucking it off. So in my opinion, I thought the cinematography was absolutely beautiful. What's your What's your take on that though? Totally agree. I think there's a, a little bit of snobbery going around. I've read some reviews I mean, firstly, the reviews have been all over the shop, um, as well as audience reactions, which I think is a kind of really good sign. It's hitting a lot of nerves. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of harsh reviews of this film. And I think, yeah, like you said, Todd Phillips, maybe partly from a couple of things he said uh, and previous movies has got a bad rap from this. But, uh, I mean... Joaquin Phoenix carries this movie for sure um, and gives a depth to the character uh, that, you know, it just basically makes up 75% of the movie for me. So one of the things that um, I find fascinating about this film is that you can take as much comic bookness in or out of this film as much as you want. So you could literally have just replaced it with, instead of him becoming a clown, he could literally just be anything else. It doesn't have to be called Joker. You can remove, there is a Batman element in this in terms of Thomas Wayne and Bruce Wayne is even in this film for a moment. You can remove that scene. In fact, I've read somewhere that when they were recording a lot of those scenes or even mentioning the Waynes, they would record the first versions of just a generic name because Joaquin Phoenix is like, I don't really care about that stuff. I care about Arthur and I care about that my interpretation from this character. And apparently from listening to a couple of interviews with him, Joaquin Phoenix has done a couple of things in his own acting style that he's never done before. Like, for example, for the first time in his career, he actually watched playbacks of stuff. He watched a monitor. He He's always very much like, I do my thing. I never care about what the camera sees. That's what for the director sees. But for this film in particular, he would actually meet the director a couple of hours before any take and they'll look at all the footage they had before and they'll go over it again and again and again. And that level of polish, I think, shows so much in this. He leaves everything on the screen. I don't think he can ever walk away from this film thinking he did not do his absolute utmost and and was fully committed to that project. He is incredible. I think he's definitely warrant of the praise. I think when it comes to award season, I think he needs to be in that conversation. I think he's fantastic for it. I do think what you've been saying about critics trying to pan this, I think there's a narrative they were trying that they were hoping to find in terms of the week prior, as I was saying in last week's pod, of everyone keeps saying this danger, quote-unquote dangerous tag. And then when they've actually seen the film, go, oh, no, actually, you've done this in a really, really interesting way where, yes, you are showing how this character transcends the madness, but you are not at any point worshipping him. You're not glorifying him. You can pity these people because, you know, people aren't born monsters, they're made. And you find out how this monster gets made. Doesn't mean you want to be that monster. You do empathise with how the journey the, the monster goes through, but you are not glorifying it. And the result of that is, well, I didn't really like the film anyway. It's a bit pretentious <laughs> and, yeah, it's a bit shit really, isn't it? So it's just like, a, it's like, call your dogs. Look, I think a lot of people wanted to pan this from the start. And the problem is you've got a damn good film. I wanted to pan this. You know, I was I was on the, the side of, you know, people that probably hated Venom and stuff like that. Why is these films existing? But look, just judge the film, judge the performance. And I think Whacking Phoenix is amazing in this. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's a lot of critics are kind of just unsettled by it, maybe. Um, like my wife, actually, she's far smarter, smarter than me and was telling me how 
every iteration of the Joker, it plays on the fear, fears of the era of the time. So you've got 60s Joker, that sort of comic book thing, a bit of a hippie, right? Everyone's scared of hippies back then. Yeah. You've got the 80s, you've got the Jack Nicholson, who's a kind of drug addict, right? Uh, cokehead yeah. sort of thing. You've got Heath Ledger, basically a terrorist. And then you've got Joaquin Phoenix's situation, which is a lone wolf kind of... Um, you know, isolated, people sort of isolated thing. from society. So it's it's playing on the fears of of the moment, which is kind of genius when you think about it. But I think that's part of why it's so unsettling and why some liberal outlets might find it a, a little too glorifying of uh, that community. Um, that's a really, really good point, and you've done a great job stealing that from your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I think she might have stole like, it from somewhere else, but that's uh... <laughs> fair enough. All, all good ideas are stolen, to be fair. But um, this is very much you're right. It's a character study. It's a character study of this character, and they've set it in a time which gives civil unrest and gives a a reason for that world to be and a reason for that environment to breed this sort of person. That doesn't mean that's the real world. This is escapism. It's fantasy. The one thing, though, and this is the biggest challenge this film was always going to have, and I don't know if it, if it accomplishes this or not, is that there is no hero in this story. This is only a bad path. This is only a dark path. This is only a grim path. So that means you've got to end this story. And do you end in a triumphant victory? You can't. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. So how do you end this film? And I think that's the biggest challenge this film has. And it does. the film does end, of course, because otherwise we'll still be in the cinema right now. But I, I, I spent the entire time on this roller coaster going around. I've been along with Arthur. I don't sympathise with Arthur. I understand, though, and I kind of see the direction he's gone into it. It's pulled the rug out of me a couple of times with some interesting different tangents from the comic book lore. Um, but how does this end? What is the end game here? And we'll talk about that more in the spoiler part, which is going to be at the end of this podcast. But I, that was the biggest challenge. I don't know if it if it is a triumph from the ending perspective. Does that make sense, or have I gone a bit too too weird on that? No, I, f I think it's a fair point. I kind of really liked the ending. Actually, I think it I think it was great. Um, I think it almost. For the whole movie, you were kind of forgotten. You were basically in a comic book world. You're in Gotham City, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. forgot about that because of <laughs> the the realism of it, the grittiness of it. But um, I feel like the final act kind of put you back in that world. And uh, it was kind of slightly comforting, although <laughs> obviously the ending is, you know, as dark as any part of the movie. But... I feel like it was slightly comforting. The way uh, we'll do the spoiler stuff later, but um, we'll get more into it. But um, yeah, I, f I felt like I really liked the ending, actually. Cool. Well, we will talk about that later on in the pod, but let's give this a score. John, for me, this is five out of five. It's probably film of the year. And I say that with Endgame and Us and Booksmart and Midsummer and a bunch of other stuff out there. And I know there's probably a lot of the filmy people that subscribe to this going, what the fuck, Flint? Uh, you're a bit too excited right now. Let's see how you feel at the end of the year. But right now, I'm thinking like this has got everything that I I wanted and 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 more. And it it taught me something that I didn't think I would want to see. And not only do I want, but let me be clear, I do not want a sequel. I don't want spin-offs. This should live and breathe in its own right. And it's just a you dust it off and go. Ah, oh, okay. Let's do this. Let's play this what if scenario and watch it and just enjoy it. What do you think? I do you know what I've got? I'm going with a four. Um, I haven't really got into the the negatives, but for me, it's a real oh, it's 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 
a two-hour <laughs> slog of emotional traumatic glumness um and it is quite it's a heavy watch uh i mean f- for a five out of five i kind of want to watch it again like yeah yeah this is a movie that i'm really glad i watched but i i'm not going to be in a hurry to watch it again uh does that sort of make sense for you yeah all right let's go four and a half then. <laughs> it's still up there for a film of the year contender but yes i do agree to an extent you might want uh, yeah for it to be a five you've got to want to as soon as you've walked out of the cinema i want to watch it again i was feeling that way but uh, i can understand 100 percent why people wouldn't but then again midsummer's a five out of five and you do not want to see that ever again <laughs> or at least have some good space between that so there you have it four and a half out of five put on a happy face the joker Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? News. There's a reason why I brought up your your gaming origins, John, is because there's actually some more news about the Uncharted movie because video game adaptations have been so good so far. We've done a pod about it a year ago. Spoiler alert, they don't turn out to be very good. Um, But anyway, the Uncharted movie is in the works at the moment. In fact, it's been in the works for about 10 years. But Travis Knight is going to be directing this. He's the guy who directed Bumblebee, but he's also worked in loads of cool animation movies. And we've talked about this before. Tom Holland is also starring, uh, obviously fresh off his victory of apparently being the reason why Marvel and Sony got it back on was because of a passionate plea by Tom Holland. It was almost like he was a little, little hostage ringing up Sony going, please. I really had fun with them and they've gone oh right it's like when you know when you get a, a, I don't know like a rescue dog and then you bring it home and it goes oh I had a friend alright we'll go back and get its friend because you, you can't leave them you can't separate them it's a bit like that but John have you ever played the Uncharted games is that something you enjoyed uh, I didn't enjoy them but I, I know uh, they ne- that never really did much for me but I know the movie uh, the game was quite pioneering for having like this extensive storyline that uh, was almost like a film in itself it really bridged that gap from where games crossed over to to have a story like worthy of a film so you know there's you feel like they've got a good starting block here mm, definitely so with travis knight the reason why i'm really excited i got travis knight involved in this is because bumblebee watch that film and watch it through this lens travis knight is a fucking huge spielberg fan and he adores Amblin movies. He grew up with them. And if you watch Bumblebee through that prism, it's E.T. It's about a, li- a girl who finds an alien, she befriends it, and it becomes a charming relationship. And eventually they've got to go from point A to point B because the government's after them. That's E.T. And that's the story of Bumblebee. And he's done it in a way that's very sort of homage to the that sort of tropes, but told in his own way. Now... Think about Uncharted. Think about that's basically a video game answer to to Indiana Jones. It's a male Lara Croft because we need more of those sort of things in the world, of course. But anyway, that aside, uh, this is a it's very much set in that sort of world. So with someone who knows how to take those sort of tropes and do them in a way that's compelling to that source material, but adding its own flair as well. I think this could be like a, a return of the Indiana Jones style movie. The only thing is, is that Tom Holland's a young guy and he's a great 
young guy and he's a fantastic actor. And um, I always saw Nathan Drake as Nathan Drake as we see him in the games, which is a guy kind of in his late 30s, early 40s. Life's just changed a bit for him and maybe his best days are passing, but he's still going out for an adventure. Yes, okay, I'm talking about what every middle-aged white man aspires for. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that aside, um, there's a really cool opportunity here and I think there could be a really good film because of Travis Knight. That is what's made me excited about this. Cool. And just to add, Tom Holland's been a young man for about 20 years, hasn't he? So he's one of them <laughs> timeless classics. Very true. Or saying that, it, it, you remember the film The Impossible with Ewan McGregor? Mm, yeah. He's, he's the son in that, and he looks... He's obviously very young in that, but you look at that and think, oh, but he's Spider-Man now and all that. <laughs> and then you think, actually, The Impossible wasn't that long ago. It doesn't feel that long ago that I watched that film. And, uh, yeah, I've probably got T-shirts that I still wear that I wore uh, around then as well. But speaking about another guy who doesn't age ever, Ryan Reynolds. Um, he's got that new Netflix movie coming out very soon, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about another film that he announced. Uh, I think it was a Comic-Con that was going on over the weekend and they kind of surprised everyone with a... It's not a trailer. It's a... I don't know. It's like a tonal video where it's basically we've got the cast together and we're talking about the project and you might see some, like, artist interpretation of what they're going to make. It's it one of those sort of videos. Anyway, this film is called Free Guy. It is very much set in the world of video games. It's about a bank teller discovers he's actually an NPC inside a brutal video game. If you, to the uninitiated, an NPC means non-playable character. If you play a video game and like you have to go to a shop and be like, hello, it's, 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 it's like speaking to a fictional character in a video game. It's fucking batshit crazy. Sean Levy's going to be directing it. Um, but the cast is really interesting. You've got Ryan Reynolds, obviously. Uh, you've got Jodie Comer after, obviously, her great success with Killing Eve. It's great to see she's like going into more films and stuff. Channing Tatum's going to be in this. Joe Kerry from Stranger Things, a.k.a. the guy with the cool hair, or you know, the mullet, however you want to define it. That And Taika Waitiki. Um, but what makes this fucking hilarious is during this video... Taika Waititi and Ryan Reynolds try to claim it's the first time they've ever met and they've never done any projects together before. Obviously, they worked together on Green Lantern. And it's just the way they've done it is so funny. John, first of all, how does that car sound? That sounds absolutely banging. Um, yeah, I'm definitely pumped up for that. And But <laughs> the concept of an NPC being like the main character of a game, wouldn't it be funny if he's literally programmed to say four lines <laughs> and, and somehow they, they do that in... But I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, which so, is there any other like video game characters that uh, only have a few lines that somehow you can make a film out of that you can think off the top of your head? Oh, I don't know about that. What's th- m- m- why are you maybe Kirby? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that just like makes. Wob- I'm actually saying that they kind of done this with the, that Pokemon movie, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they managed to do the Pokemon movie with Ryan Reynolds recently, where it's just uh, you know most of the Pokemon only say their name. So well, I've been campaigning for be a Worms movie for for a long time, but um, you know it's got something to say about warfare, but on a very small scale with Worms. I think that'd be awesome. But no one's taken me up on would it. Would you go down the comedy route, or would you try and be as deadly fucking serious as possible? Like this is a a harsh, grim reality of. <laughs> the world of war but it's just done on a micro scale yeah. with these worms so, oh a deadly series i think i'd get matt and trey to do it if they'd be up for that hilariously kind of spoof of war movie i think with worms someone make it that come on be awesome 
there, John, John, you've got my money, man. Like, I hope, hopefully, someone's listening. But actually, have you heard? Do you know that uh, new war movie, uh, nineteen seventeen? Yes. Um, which everyone is going nuts about. Apparently, it's going to. Although, it's, obviously, it's not going to be uh, practically done like this, but it's going to be told in a one shot, as in you follow one camera, one viewpoint throughout the whole movie. That's insane. That's that. What so Birdman style? Because Birdman yeah, does but that. Obvi- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. Everyone has said first thing. Everyone says about what, like Birdman. Yeah, exactly like Birdman. But obviously, there there will be editing involved. <laughs> Otherwise, I can imagine it will take about five years to to make this to get it right. Okay, we've got a two hour take. <laughs> I, Go. I can see that being really effective actually in a, for a war movie. So I'm guessing your first, you you really feel like you're in it. Um, but yeah, I'm. That's really intriguing. I maybe. So- I think you're gonna get PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I oh, know. I'm looking it's forward to that insane. one. But um, but anyway, so speaking about things that are coming out in the future, uh, Kevin Smith, absolute legend. Uh, obviously, after the heart attack, has been revitalised. He's got a new lease of of life and a new lease of popularity to boot with that as well. We've got Jay and Silent Bob reboot coming out in the UK on November 27th, uh, just before my birthday. Yay! Uh, but he's also announced that he's going to be doing Clerks Free. Um, so he's riding the wave and, and making it ride even higher. Now I, I think these films are they're not necessarily going to re, uh, make you make you feel again or or make you think they're the greatest films of all time. But I, I hold these films in high regard. Did you ever like the Clerks and the? They, they've got a huge cult following, haven't they? For a certain mm. a certain era um, and a certain group of mostly men our age probably uh, have a lot of fondness for that I didn't quite ever get Jay and Silent Bob to be honest Um, and seeing the sort of photo of them now redo those characters seems like I don't know I'm a bit sceptical but I did they they I went for a phase of popping up in different movies in there in Dogma which I thought was really cool I love Um, that film so yeah interesting Hope. I so when we done do you remember earlier on in the year we went to London Comic Con and we were allowed to to go sit on stuff and speak to people I had the opportunity to chat with Jason Muse actually um, unfortunately we couldn't record it uh, because I didn't have my podcast equipment with me and it was just a you're Jason Muse and I just went over and had a chat with him for a second this was um, just before he went on to do his 25th clerks anniversary panel and you can just tell there's uh, they've, they've got this feeling of it's been a minute since we've had a chance to tell, revisit these characters. We don't know if we're ever going to come back to it. Obviously, it sounds like they are now of Clerks 3, but they don't know if they're going to come back to it after this period of time of revisiting that well. And they're just drinking it in. They're just enjoying the fact that they've got this following, like you say. In fact, um, when I was sitting in the crowd during that panel, just looked around the room and like there's, there were people holding photos of when they've been to other conventions and seen Jason Muse or Kevin Smith in the past and getting them to re-sign stuff or like they've got t-shirts from like other events they've been at. They, it's like a fucking band. That, you know, it's, like the, it's like hardcore Beatle fans. Maybe not to the same level as Beatlemania, but you know, you get my point of these guys have got a community and they for a long time they maybe not have spoken to that community or been in touch with that community in a way where they're travelling around the world doing all these panels all the time I, I don't know if that's true for, um, per se but you can feel like they're really they're living in the moment and enjoying it and yeah bully for them and yeah, you know, I 
I can't wait to see it. Let's see what they do. Um, apparently, there was a Clerks 3 script a couple of years ago that was done. It was in a very different place. Um, apparently, the script was pretty depressing. In fact, there's some really controversial elements in that script. They'd done a live reading of that script at a live show um, some point earlier on in the year. Uh, but that that's not the script that they're making now. It's something far more happier, far more like, hey, we've got this whole thing going forward. So, you know what? Fair play to them. I hope they make a fuckload of money for it. Anyway, we reviewed Joker to begin with at the start of this pod, and I was speaking to, to Bill Jet Ramey about uh, that film and a bunch of other DC stuff. What we didn't speak about was Birds of Prey uh, because the trailer didn't drop at that point, but the trailer has dropped now at this point. I've got to be honest, though, like this feels like the sequel to Suicide Squad that no one's asking for, but everyone really likes Margot Robbie, so we're kind of all torn. Have you seen this trailer yet? Yeah, it was it was actually just before the Joker last night. Um, I thought it was really good, actually. I I don't know a whole lot about that character, but um, she looks amazing at it, and it's kind of there's a lot going on in that trailer, right? There's, hmm. but I I yeah, I think it's a great trailer. I think it's gonna be. I don't know, set up for disappointment probably, but uh, <laughs> Margot Robbie, you know, she really shows her, I don't know, she's showing her like, uh, what's the word? Her um, Versatility. Versatility, thank you, Jamie. Uh, her versatility with that. Is, is that. is that Jamie producing in the back there? Love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think the, there's certain parts of it that's great. I think Margot Robbie's fantastic. She was the best part of the Suicide Squad movie. Although I, I've got to say, actually, I, I quite enjoyed Suicide Squad, even though I know it's one of those films that you know is shit. Like, hands up, it's, it's not a good film, but I still enjoy mm. it. And there was something about it I did enjoy. Um, but this trailer feels like, I don't know, without like a narrative... It just feels like she kind of says, me and Joker broke up and I've met these people and here's Ewan McGregor with his American accent because that's the only accent he has that isn't Scottish. And, um, uh, but yeah, with Ewan McGregor, for me, he's either like absolutely incredible, like going to win an Oscar, I love him, or not very good. There doesn't seem to be an in-between. And I don't know what Ewan we're going to get um, from that perspective. But yeah, I, I don't. I'm so confused about what's going on at Warner Brothers when they actually come out and say this is a standalone thing it's not meant to connect and anything else you can suspend disbelief and enjoy it aka Joker and apparently they're doing that with their new Batman movie it's going to be you know, not linked to any of that stuff that's come before but when you take a universe that you've kind of abandoned in the DCEU Snyderverse whatever you call it take characters from that universe and do spin-off movies Whilst at the same time you're saying, oh, we're, we're avoiding that sort of stuff in the future, it just gets confusing. And I think maybe a lot of comic book fans are going to see it just because it's the golden age of comic book movies, but I don't know if it's going to hold up, especially when you're doing stuff like Joker, like you're doing stuff like The Batman in terms of how they're going that direction. But I hope it does well for one reason and one reason only, and that is because this film is produced by Margot Robbie's production company. She's got a production company now. I think it's going to be the first film from that. I think it's really important that these opportunities become available for people and that money goes to the right places. So I, for that perspective, I hope it makes a load of money. I'm just not necessarily bowled over by the trailer. Mm. I humbly disagree, but there we go. <laughs> so later on in the year, we're going to be going to Secret Cinema again. They've invited us back to review Stranger Things, which me and John cannot wait for. But something that is even making it more exciting is that Netflix have announced that Stranger Things Season 4 is happening and they gave us a little teaser video 
But more importantly, we are not going to Hawkins anymore. What's your take on this, John? Uh, well, they've got a... Yeah, it's a good call. This is the season that, that something needs to kind of change. That You can't rely on 80s nostalgia um, for another sort of season. I'm not, Maybe that's harsh to rely on it, but I think it's a good call. We need to kind of... Something needs to happen something different we're enjoying growing up with these characters but it kind of feels like the last season until the end for me didn't really get me um so i'm, I'm glad with this Maybe. news i felt like season three it never really got started until the finale mm. i don't I, and it's weird to say because you're like 10 hours in or whatever at that point but yeah it's only like you say it's only when the finale when it all comes together i don't even think there was that many scenes prior to that point where the whole cast were like in the same episode or even had moments of interaction it felt like there was your group a your group b and there'll be a little group c and you've got your own storylines and then bang we're all together and mm. sometimes it works it's, it, i don't feel like it worked as well as it could do maybe again i said this actually with um with big mouth and my intro right that sometimes you you love a show you get ingrained in it your expectations get higher and higher and higher and a lot of people brushed up against season two uh, for whatever reason but I really enjoyed season 2 and season 3 it didn't I don't know so yeah you're right they had to take it somewhere else and they're kind of a victim of their own success in terms of bringing the nostalgia play in fact I would say they probably are the the innovators of nostalgia they're the reason why we're so sick of 80s stuff now mm. <laughs> probably yeah. because it was after Stranger Things we had a bunch of stuff coming to the point that you've even got fucking Black Mirror episodes that are set in the 80s because of you know how much how successful this stuff has been so I don't want to see another thing of kids on bikes going across town you know like it needs to move on it needs to move evolve and uh, let's see where it evolves I mean it's interesting, spoiler alert for season three if you've not seen it, but um, the ending where, was it, are they in Russia or Ukraine? I can't remember now. And they're like, oh, put him with the American. Who, call it now, who's the American? It's got to be our man, isn't it? Uh, Mustache man, what's his? The copper. copper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. Um, yeah, yeah, David Harbour. That's what, if it's not that, it's really going to let a lot of fans down and Stranger Things... Are very afraid of letting fans down. I get that impression anyway. So it's not exactly Game of Thrones, is it? They're not killing characters <laughs> off at will. I think it's going to be. It'll either, it'll either be David Harbour, um, or if it's not David Harbour, then it's going to be Eleven's dad. I know he kind of dies in season one, but it might be a she sent him somewhere else and her powers are telepathic and she didn't realise it or something. No. It's going to be linked to Eleven anyway. Uh, that's my theory. I'll take my tinfoil hat off now <laughs> and just to, to wrap off news with him. Um, so, Mr Scorsese, obviously, we all love you. You're one of the best directors ever. Uh, you, you, know, you edit a film really well. But, um, or, or should I say not you, your, your staff that you employ edit films very well. Uh, but he's been out in the press recently bigging up The Irishman, which... You, to be honest, you don't really need to because the whole world is captivated and wants to see this film already. But obviously, people are talking about Joker, so he has the comments as well. And he started slagging off comic book movies. The exact quote is, I don't see them as cinema. Uh, I tried sitting down and watching a Marvel movie once, but I just couldn't get into it. For me, that's not cinema. That's a theme park ride. It needs to be a more cinematic experience. I don't class the comic book movies as that. And it's just like, dude, you did, didn't you produce Joker, which is a comic book movie? 
Uh, like, I don't know, John, you, you probably you were probably like, oh, finally, someone's come out and said what I've been thinking for years. But, but why is he saying this? Well, Where's this coming from? I heard the quote and you, I thought, oh, there's got to be more to it. So you kind of read the rest of it. And I, it's hard to disagree with him. I don't think he's really slagging it off per se, but I think he just... Scorsese's all about character depth um, and emotional, psychological sort of experiences with humans and throwing midgets (laughs) and uh, (laughs) Marvel movies is probably not where you go for those sort of movies Uh, but I so I kind of I don't think he's saying there's anything wrong with a theme park ride style it's just not his his style and I sort of agree with him because I'm a big snob as well but um, I think (laughs) yeah so I think there's more to his quote I think he probably become a villain now because of that quote's been you know used by news outlets all over the place and kind of so clickbaity at the moment that very clickbaity but read the whole thing and then disagree with him I dare you all right, John. Well, you've, you've called me out on that bullshit because, yeah, you're right. I've only kind of read hot takes on it rather than actually gone through the entire interview from that perspective. But people like me have read that and gone, what the fuck? <laughs> fuck you, dude. I like these films. I've been watching these films for like 10 years. It's 22 movies. They're like family for me. They're my friends and I'll defend my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, run over and meltdowns aside, that's your news for this week. We'll be reviewing Gemini Man properly next week. Um, All I can say is that I've seen it. It is a film. It has Will Smith and Will Smith. So I wanted to think about Will Smith. And the top five this week is going to be about top five Will Smith movies. Uh, Usually we go more deep and nerdy, but we'll just keep it light and fluffy this week. Um, But it's nice to think back to Big Will, King of the Hill, the summer films this guy has done. He is a legend. Like, absolutely cinematic legend in for some people me included he is your homer simpson you have grown up on this guy and the fact that he still keeps coming back again and again and still producing most of the time really really good films still yeah there's something to be said about that so let's celebrate the man i'm gonna give my top five john i'm gonna go from my five to one Mm -hmm. and then then you you can comment on your ones because because maybe there's some crossover or maybe there's controversy here so my number five so Number five, Hitch. Mm. Reason why is because I really like. When was the last time you went and saw like a rom com movie and you just walked out going, that was okay? (laughs) I enjoyed that. I've got nothing bad to say, not too much good to say, but it didn't annoy me. And I think everyone, I think like universally, like the human race, if we had to make a list of all the things the human race could agree on, one, racism is bad, two, don't be a Nazi, and three, Hitch is okay. <laughs> so just for that reason alone, it's in my number five. <laughs> that's Well, that's setting itself, setting this list up to be an absolute belter then, is it? <laughs> okay, so number four, um, this was Will Smith definitely going after his Oscar nod, which unfortunately he never got, and I don't think he ever will. Um but this is the most going for the actor uh, nod as much as possible was Ali. He physically changed his body for. I really, really like this film. I like films that span a long time when they do. A, I like biopics to be like young, middle-aged, maybe a little bit older, concludes at a point, And that point was Rumble in the Jungle. And it was done in just such a, I just thought in an amazing way. I really enjoyed it. 
I mean, let's be one thing straight. Will Smith does not look like Muhammad Ali. They are two very separate people. But he transformed himself into an amazing boxer and he gave a great interpretation. I think sometimes the best movie interpretations of someone's life isn't necessarily when they try and mimic, it's when they interpret. Think about Taron Egerton in Rocket Man. Like, you don't look anything like Elton John, but he, he embodies a personality in a way that makes it a very believable performance. And I think... I think Ali is an absolute fucking classic. Did you did you like Ali? Yes. No. I, he did a great job in that. Let's be fair. Um, and it, that's quite an undertaking, um, and what an effort. So yeah, I'd definitely go along with that. I'm surprised it's not slightly higher, but go on. Uh, uh, there's so I've, I've, so I'll go through my last three, and I'll talk about the ones that I really wanted to put in the list but didn't. But um, so my number three is Men in Black. The reason why is because that first film is a fucking trip, okay? It's, it feels like a Tim Burton movie, but back when Tim Burton made good films, it felt like something so surreal, something so oddball, bit black comedy, something was so unique about that film. And Will Smith's performance, and that was fantastic, because we, the mainstream, might not necessarily have been used to that form of storytelling, but Will Smith is the audience. You are the audience through Will Smith. You are being introduced to the world from the moment that guy has the weird blink and the gun evaporates and runs up the wall to when Will Smith is literally being the midwife to a baby octopus being born out of a car. There's something really great about that film and the performance that I thought was really good as well. And the way, it, I mean, that film was made for Tommy Lee Jones as well. His deadpanness is, and how that, that dynamic works so well. And I think it's a shame that, let's face it, Men in Black is not a franchise. It's a damn good film and a bunch of shit sequels similar <laughs> to the Predator franchise. But that first film, Men in Black, it just opens up at that, from that, that moment where everyone sits and looks up to the sky and thinks, we're not alone and it's a bit weird and there's some weird eerie music which is both retro and futuristic at the same time. It's, it's a great film. It holds up. Watch it again. So that's, that's my number three. Keeping the alien theme, my number two is Independence Day. Because that film is the birth of the summer blockbuster. I remember it was the first 12A, I think, as well. Um, and I just remember the hype behind this film. And it did not disappoint. Everything from Paul Newman's performance to the effects, seeing the White House being blown up. And it was like, oh my God, Big Ben blowing up and the world being decimated. And then they had to go that fight and that speech. We celebrate mm-hmm. our Independence Day. Like, oh man, it gives me the fucking chills now that's my president and um i just i generally generally love that film it's one of the things that holds up again it's not a franchise it's an amazing film with shitty sequels that will probably come even after that bloody resurgence movie that wasn't very good but the common denominator here was will smith was so good in this as well breakout performance it went from him being a a well-known actor to the biggest star on the planet and, for the, and probably the biggest star on the planet for a number of years afterwards because of that year where he had Men in Black, Independence Day. You know, the list went on and on and Bad Boys got involved as well. Independence Day, where for you, is that like, is this, the, some people are like, now I can take it or leave it or some people are like, I will die on the hill for Independence Day. I, no, I'm definitely the latter. Uh, like you said, I think it came out, I was about 10 or 11 and... So it just blew my little mind. And it was a proper first, one of the first summer blockbusters, like you said. And I just thought, wow, this is cinema. I remember my older cousin went to see it three times. And I just thought, wow, well, this is just the best movie ever then. And obviously you grow up a bit more and 
get into Scorsese movies and realise that it might not be, but uh, it's still definitely one of my favourite. Uh, it's definitely I put it as number one of my Will Smith movies for yeah for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, that was the first time I read the author novelization of a film before seeing the film. Uh, in fact, I think that's the only time I've actually read like the novelization from a film anyway. But um, because I was too young to go see it, like I could not get into a cinema to go see it. So I read the book. And this was back in the day when a film would be in the cinema for, for months. Oh, yeah. It would be just months upon months <laughs> upon months. And I read the book because my mum said, I'll buy you the book. So I said, oh, please take me. I really want it. She goes, no, no, it looks scary, blah, blah, blah. And at the time, I wasn't doing too well at school. And my mum was just like, look. I'm hearing you're not your your reading is not particularly up to a, up to snuff. And how about this? I'll buy you the book of Independence Day if you read this book cover to cover. I will take you, but you gotta do it before it runs out in cinema. So my mum smuggled me in after as a as a as a uh, prize for for finishing the book. And yeah, literally, I can't. I don't think any fitter description is when you sit down and watch that. This is cinema. That is why you get up. That is why you leave the house and go to a room with a bunch of strangers and sit for a bunch of ads and pay money for that. It's because you are going to get this experience and transcend it into another world for that escapism for that 120 minutes. And it is pure, unadulterated mm. excitement. And, you know, damn, I've sold it to myself now. I'm now kind of regretting not making it number one. But my number one, my number one Will Smith movie is Enemy of the State. Uh, the reason why is because Will Smith's performance is very, very measured whilst at the same time being a typical Will Smith performance which is a very very hard line to balance in a way where the film doesn't feel at weight of it I think that's maybe because it came about at a time before Big Will become maybe the biggest biggest star on the planet and it meant that he could be himself do his thing whilst at the same time you've got people like Gene Hackman uh, being able to bust their chops in this sort of environment as well and I it was the perfect combination of technology suspense thriller with a bit of Bit of comedy to cut it up, but I I love that film and I watch it again and again and again. That's that is my number one. Mm, okay, all right. Honorary mentions then. Uh, the list it's a good list. Obviously, no room for bad boys. Um, no. Wild Wild West. I mean, any movie where Will Smith gets to rap and make music, then I think that's got to make the list just for that. So I might have put Wild Wild West. Uh, the Pursuit of Happiness, I kind of... That's a lot more down my street, that sort of dramatic, yeah. uh, heartfelt... It does feel like Oscar baiting, though, doesn't it? It does. That film is basically just Will Smith. Go- it might as well be called For Your Consideration. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still nice. It's a nice movie. It and he got to act with his son, yeah. and it's adorable. Um, and... Honorary mention for I wasn't expecting this to be in the list, but Shark Tale. I think Shark Tale, <laughs> two thousand and four. Uh, you know, in that DreamWorks kind of, they were just sort of pioneering that genre. Pixar was out, and it was a good riposte to Pixar. And I loved the way they sort of used all the characters. Um, they exaggerate everyone's features, and I thought Will Smith's little fishy was awesome. Fishy Will. <laughs> he can do anything. <laughs> Uh, so actually, so I've, I've got a little list of honourable mentions which uh, I've been debating should, and maybe on a different day they might have ended up towards the bottom end of my list. Um, yeah, bad boys, I do agree with you. I, they, yeah, it has its time, 
And I think it's time has passed, and I don't know how Bad Boy 3 is going to be. Uh, but anyway, uh, Pursuit of Happiness is on this as well. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a great performance. If you ever want to, if you ever think you're broke or that you're you're struggling for money, watch that film, and then you'll just be grateful for what you got. Um, I Am Legend. I really like that film. Like, it, there is something really cool about it. Um, it is literally just Will Smith being Will Smith on his own for the best part of 90 minutes but it's there's it's something to be said about that it's just the way he carries that film is great I really enjoy Seven Pounds as well mm-hmm. um, I, I really actually I'm probably one of the only people that everyone else probably thought it wasn't particularly good but I remember coming out of the cinema and I was crying I was like there's something beautiful about that film I mean again it's one of his Oscar baiting for your consideration sort of movies but I yeah, enjoyed it in Coming to America do you, have you ever seen that the Whoopi Goldberg movie he plays uh, uh, he's not in it for that much but every time he is in it he's very charming very funny yeah um, that was 93 wasn't it that's an early one yes yeah and um, so anyway is there any that I've missed John is there any that uh, that wouldn't make your top five or any sorry that I've said that shouldn't be in your top five no I, f- I think you pretty much covered it um i reckon yeah like i am legend i think that was that was a good movie actually a good movie no room for aladdin though i noticed which is a <laughs> mighty shame let's i mean you could also make a, a a worst films of will smith as well list um, such as the range of the uh, quality of movies he's, of he's done, yeah. but that's part of why we love him, right? He's unpredictable. Um, yeah, and there's certain films that are, you remember I said before there are bad films, and you know they're bad. You know, put your hands up, say, "Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Adam Flynn. I'm 33 years young. This is a bad movie, but I fucking love yeah. it." Hancock is one of those yeah. movies. It's not good, but it's good. <laughs> yeah, you know. Absolutely. So there you have it. Is there any other Will Smith movies that would be in your top five? Let us know on Twitter at Talk Filmy to Me. This is a spoiler special about the Joker. If you have not seen this film and you do not want details spoiled, then quite simply, go to your cinema. Take some time, sleep on after you've seen it, then come back and listen to this. So, John, that scene uh, that we should playing the music for uh, just now reminds me of uh, literally the other night I was at a work thing and um, I may have had a couple of jars and on my way home, I, I live near a train station and... Um, I was walking down the steps and I could not help but feel like I was reenacting that walk on the way home. How many times on a on a drunken night out when you had to negotiate stairs that you've you've looked like like whacking Phoenix's Joker going to the Murray show? Oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? And that dance, that sort of weird floaty dance he does in many parts of the movie, I just loved. There's something about it. It's so cl- so weird. You feel like you've been to gigs where you get that kind of random guy at the front who's uh who just does not give a shit and uh, that kind of the dancing rem- homer yeah kind of remind me of that and i actually i sorry dude i was gonna say i actually brushed up a little bit in this scene now for two reasons one when you see it in the trailer you don't see the music you just see him doing his thing and he's dancing and by the way like fucking what whacking thinks he's got some moves in this film by the way he does some great dancing but when he's doing that 
dance down the stairs. The editing goes to very much a Todd Phillips style that we kind of know, right? Think about those Hangover movies. There's always a scene where you've got a bunch of nerds, a bunch of people that aren't supposed to look the way they are, slow-mo walking down a corridor, and it's very much playing a song like that. Like, a, you know, I think they call it a slut walk. You know, it's just like a, yeah, I'm looking like dope. This is, you know, sort of thing. And I've really brushed up against that because I was just like, it just felt so, like, the tone of this film and it tries to pepper in comedy and I don't know if it works. And it felt like it was taking something that was supposed to be iconic and beautiful and you've kind of made it a cheap laugh. Mm. Did you feel that way? I kind of felt like it was, he's on a roll, right? He was for the first time in his life, like he said, he hadn't felt, hadn't spent one minute of his life happy. And I felt like that scene was the, like that was the first minute. And he finally realized he was just like happy because he had, realized that he was a psychopath who liked killing people but um he just finally <laughs> felt like i don't know i think he just felt happy in that moment and he, he felt like he'd been seen uh and he looked so cool so cool and i was you know it was hard to watch that scene because you were sort of rooting mm. for him you are, but you're not, right? So, let's, uh, as mentioned, it kind of goes... I think the editing is a bit weird because of that song makes it weird. Uh, and like you say, it's he's, it's my big daddy bollocks moment of I'm the man. But this film tries to undercut with legitimate comedy in, and there's some bits that don't... That doesn't necessarily work for me. So, like, you know the scene where he's at the hospital, he's smoking his cigarette, the police have come to him saying, Mr. Fleck, we've got some things we'd like to talk to you about. You've not been answering your phone, so can we please have a conversation? And Arthur stands up and basically says to him, like, I need to get back to my mother. You know, gives the big butch talk and then walks and smacks into that door <laughs> and the cinema laughed but i was just like i i don't feel ready to laugh in this film do you know what i mean yeah there was a couple of moments like that that like just a tiny bit of comic relief i thought that was really good because how often in a movie does someone just do something stupid like that just naturally stupid i thought that was uh, i thought that was really good and it felt like mm. the kind of thing that he would would do it made sense with the character um the other funny bit i have to mention is obviously the scene in his flat where he's just absolutely brutalized his his big fat mate who wasn't his mate and uh his uh, other uh small friend can't reach the lock um i thought that was <laughs> such a genius scene got that. it was so good uh it was really really funny and tasteless and kind of it's just i thought it was a Trust very welcome to, to get a uh, a a little person joke in there <laughs> but uh, actually at that point when because i thought he's going to kill him he's obviously going to kill him but then when he lets him go that was my initial thought was this is a suicide movie mm. because he does not intend to feel the repercussions of his actions in which case it doesn't matter you've always been good to me Mwah. go on be on your way sort of thing but the whole thing, like you say, builds up to this. This, so um, we're going to go back and forth, and you know we don't have to go in chronological order of the film, obviously. But this is obviously from that moment, Arthur becomes Joker. In fact, everything works for him. All of a sudden, he is uh, cool as a cucumber. He can kill someone. He can move on. And I think maybe now, now thinking out loud, the whole concept is he's never felt right. He's never been himself. 
all he has is negative thoughts, as he says in his social media, social media, <laughs> in his social worker uh, meeting um, at the start of the film. And that scene where he walks into the door again is even when he's in control of the situation, he's not. Mm. And I think maybe there's a control element going on there. But let's talk about the the thing it concludes with, right? So he goes to the Murray show and he gives that monologue. I generally thought, because I was like, this is obviously inspired by Taxi Driver, and he keeps doing scenes where, do you remember he was sitting on the sofa and he puts the gun and he's just playing about? I thought he's going to just shoot himself on the show. It feels like it's building up to that point. But they actively decide to not do that and he shoots Murray. What was your like like take from that and like that scene? I, yeah, I, I didn't really think he was going to kill himself. I didn't feel like a, a suicide movie. I thought, obviously, he was something was brewing, and it was one or the other, wasn't it? Uh, and that mm. that one made more sense because he'd you can sort of start the whole point of the Joker's character, and it always has been, is that he loves chaos. Right? He really thrives around chaos, and he doesn't quite know how to uh, deal with that until he starts killing people uh and then you you just see it more and more especially that uh amazing scene on the subway um when Mm. there's clowns everywhere and he's getting chased by cops and he's just having the time of his life just sort of thriving in this chaotic atmosphere that he's harbored himself um so i kind of i think he that was what that was his big reveal wasn't it that was a big but he wanted to be around to see the chaos that's what i I think so here's an interesting thing and this is where the film really gets almost fight club twisty for me is that the film ends ultimately with him regaling his account to a woman when he's in Arkham Asylum right and obviously we see him running around with blood on his feet specifically on his feet and not on his hands I think that's a there's some symbolism there of he does not care for what he has done there is no blood on his hands in fact he will skip through blood and he is very happy to admit what he has done and move on but we learn that all of a sudden Arthur is not necessarily the right person to be telling his narrative because his perspective is wrong and that all of a sudden as I mentioned in the the spoiler free review the relationship with Desi Beats just felt fucking weird it felt strange and that's because it never existed it was all in his head And that leads me to think about, okay, so what is truth and what is the world through the eyes of Arthur Fleck? So stick me for a moment. He's obviously wanted to go on the Murray show all his life. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you see, the first scene in the film is him imagining that imaginary scene where he's talking to Murray and he's literally just like, if I had a son, he'll be like you. Give me a hug. And there's a reason why they've done this. Now, interestingly enough... Every time he has felt human emotion, human touch, human decency, it has been fictional. Mm. It has been Desi Beats in the cafe with him. It has been Desi Beats, not Desi Beats, sorry. Um, It's been him with, uh, yeah, it's Desi, sorry. Uh, Him and her character when he goes and they fuck. There's also, I believe, you know the scene where he's watching TV of his Mm mum and they start dancing? Mm. I think that's a fictional scene as well. I think that's in his head. His mum's bedbound. Mm. His mum needs a hand to literally get in and out of the bath. She would not have been able to dance with him. Mm. So he has never experienced human interaction in a nice way. And this boils down to the fact that when he was a child, he was handcuffed to a radiator and abused. They don't say 
what form of abuse, but whenever you hear child and abuse, your mind goes to horrible places, and it might have been that. And uh, his coping mechanism was laughter. And his mum really was fucked up, and maybe his mum never was nice to him. And all of a sudden you think, what is the truth? And so with that in mind, the crowd of people that laughed at him in a positive way when he nails his act and the video gets sent to Murray, were they laughing at him in a positive way? Is he actually, has he inspired a movement? Is he seeing these crowds of people? That's just me thinking like the things he wants to see. Mm. So all of a sudden it makes you question the perspective of reality from this film. What's your take? Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's I definitely the whole relationship uh, he has with the with the woman that lives across the hall from him that felt fictional from the off, and I'm glad it was because otherwise it doesn't. It's not very explicit about whether it is, but then uh, you know there's a twist, but it's not a very oh my word twist. It's like oh yeah, yeah, that makes total sense now. That makes it believable now. Yeah, but um, I feel like I don't know what are you talking about the like final riot kind of scene outside. Yeah, so that scene where he is in an ambulance and the ambulance gets hit, and then he's pulled out by these people, and then he's dancing on top of the car, and that glorious moment where he takes the blood from his mouth and makes yes, the big smile, which is a and phenomenal scene. I. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I, I, my interpretation is maybe that's not real. Mm. In fact, maybe he's just lying in the in a wreck and nothing has happened. Yeah. And then he just, you know, it's just X amount of time later. Or there's another school of thought that a period of time passes between that moment on top of the car and when you see him at Arkham Asylum where maybe, just maybe, he was pulled out of that wreckage and he's got a little gang of people and he does a bunch of criminal activity that we'll never know of. And... Batman has caught him and he's in Arkham or maybe it's who knows and there was one thing that I thought they were gonna do which they didn't end up doing was in the TV show Gotham they introduced the Joker and the way they introduced the Joker is that Joker is an ideal that after an event that happens inspires a bunch of other people to do very Joker like things so we started getting that with the Thomas Wayne murder happening not by the Joker, but inspired by people that have caused the riots made by Joker. I wouldn't have been surprised if we saw a shot of someone at a chemical factory just to suggest that maybe someone's about to fall into a vat of chemicals, you know? And all of a sudden, you've got all these different... You could have done, like, the 10 or so different versions of different Joker origin stories in a montage that's all been inspired because Arthur Fleck stood there and said, you get what you fucking deserve and blowed out his brains. <laughs> Yeah. I was expecting that, to be honest. That whole scene, the way that they left him on TV when it was clearly going off the rails, that's when it felt, that's what I was referring to about the comic book movie kind of coming back into play. Because oh, like, yeah. this is just yeah. ridiculous. This is slightly ridiculous now, but obviously it makes for an amazing movie. Um, hmm. Yeah, no, I think you. I think that's some really interesting thoughts there. But I think, for me, the ultimate moral of the story is don't cut mental health services because otherwise you'll get the joker <laughs> well there's probably a lesson to be learned there but in terms of like the one of the things which i joke because one my first thought was you know when it has the first scene where you introduced the penny his mum and they're talking about um you know she's obviously struggling with her cancer and stuff and she's talking about the waynes and then when he said oh you used to work for thomas wayne my first thought was, oh, you're trying to make this a, a almost like a mirror of Bruce Wayne and the Joker 
are actually very similar people just with very different circumstances both being raised by someone who used to work for their parents one is a child of privilege one is a child of of unfortunately not that world and without the right moral compass they go in very different directions that's generally what i thought they were trying to say and then all of a sudden this this plot twist for a second which i it suckered me in i believed they were going down that route when he opened up that note and thought that Thomas Wayne was his father. I was like, oh my fucking God, are they actually trying to say that the Joker is Batman's brother? They're going with this. All right, they're going with this. Fair play. I applaud your decision on this, but the fanboys are going to go fucking mental at you. And uh, obviously it was a ruse. Or was it a ruse? You don't know. Because one of the things that they've kind of tried to say with this casting for Thomas Wayne, and there was a lot of things coming out in the media about six that six months or so ago is that Thomas Wayne is not a good man in this film in fact he's like a Donald Trump like character so you could believe that maybe he did fuck around Mm. and maybe he did just hide all the records and paid for it to make it look like he was adopted and that his mum was locked up in an insane asylum you didn't know where the truth come from so you can't believe Arthur's perspective but you can't believe Arthur's world neither because it is corrupt Gotham is how New York was in the 70s, right? It needed cleaning up. And Thomas Wayne was part of that problem. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. That's the uh, part of the unsettling part, uh, part of this movie is there's no one to root for, is there? Thomas Wayne is a complete right. asshole. Batman is, you know, basically this little spoilt kid who there's not much to him yet. And the Joker's doing all these heinous things. So it's a murky world. It's Gotham. I mean,. The more iterations of Batman and the Joker come out, Gotham just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Really. (laughs) Yeah, very true. Interesting filmy fact. So the kid they got to play, Bruce Wayne, has played a younger version of Joaquin Phoenix in another movie. So that was another thing where people were just like, oh, maybe they are going to fucking say they're related Mm. in some size, shape or form. But again, it was just all... uh, It was all... Well, you don't know. And this is why I think this film is, is where it's at its best, where... It kind of is everything, and it's kind of nothing. It's a film about one person going postal, but it's also about one person who starts a crime spree across a whole city. It's about a guy who thinks he's his own hero, but realises he is the villain. And then he kills his mum and says, my life has always been a comedy, I thought it was a tragedy. Like, there's something fucking... Be- like, it's, it's, it's scary, that scene. Like, the moment... And again, every time... He finds that moment of tranquility where he knows who he's meant to be, the use of light. So there's like almost like a, an angelic light that shines behind him while he's killing his mum. Mm. And it's almost like, this is my moment, this is who I'm meant to be. And the moment he kills those guys in the subway for the first time and he runs to a toilet, and I've got to say, he, like I said before, he's a good dancer <laughs> and he's an amazing dancer. That scene in the toilet where he basically, it's almost like it's, it's ballet. <laughs> It's like he's moving to a music and he's created his own music because he's at that moment of focus and centre and knows exactly what he is all about. And that's why when he walks down those stairs, that is the first time he's like, yeah, as you say, he's like, yeah, it's my fucking big daddy bollocks moment. Everything comes up Millhouse all of a sudden because mm. that's who he's meant to be. So in a weird way, you don't realise it, but it is kind of like a coming of age, which is fucked up. It's a really fucked up coming of age movie with a man who's 45 <laughs> or something so a bit too late to come of age but everyone gets there at their own their own pace um exactly. i want to give a shout out to the cello score by hilda guanada 
to I have no idea how to pronounce his Swedish name, but uh, what a haunting and beautiful score. Um, mm. The main theme, you know, where the there's like two cello notes that's just literally jumping yeah. between the two notes, and it's really yeah. ambiguous uh, whether it's I, I, kind of happy or or sad or just because it's just using those two notes and kind of dancing around them and i thought that was kind of a genius theme for the joker because he yeah. you don't you know he's really ambiguous character you're not how, sure how to feel about him uh and the score's kind of not giving you too much to to go on too much clue um i thought that was genius yeah agreed i felt like that was a tribute to heath ledger in a way because basically every time so in the dark knight trilogy and there's this great chapter about it in the book, the, the Art of the Dark Knight. Highly recommend it. It's got some beautiful artwork and a lot of information that has not been previously released up until the point of that book. Um, they talk about the tones they're trying to do. And basically, they always wanted to basically, they wanted the Joker to be a powder keg, like quite literally of he is going to explode and you don't know what he is going to do. And isn't that fucking terrifying? And it's literally just one note that just gets louder and louder and louder. And again, it's using it's using some form of stringed in- instrument. I'm assuming it's a cello or something like that. And it just goes, like really, really quickly. And they drop that in times. And that's not done by accident. They knew exactly what they were doing. And it must have been some form of tribute. So otherwise, why do it? Because like I say, all of a sudden you're thinking about maybe that other performance from that as well. And I thought, Whacking Phoenix, like we've said it before in the spoiler-free part of the start, He's so good in this film. Like he's just, he makes it his own. You know, something really interesting is that he was so committed to this project. He turned up to New York where they filmed it two months prior uh, to filming, and he knew that the book that Arthur carries um, is going to be really important. And he decided that he was going to write that book. I know it sounds stupid, but he actually wrote every page in that book. And he created a handwriting style for Arthur and he thought about the sort of things that Arthur would collect. But also this guy is, is he's not just an innocent little boy. He's got a weird streak to him. He hasn't adapted to life very well. He hasn't learned to adapt to life very well. Even sexuality. You know, they, they subtly mention it when he's flicking through pages and there's fucking filth. You know what I mean? Like old 70s porno mags. He's stuck out and stuck in there and he's like, ooh, hide it away. There's even a scene where he's sitting on the sofa and I think it's about to crack off if I'm being honest and the phone rings. Um, they do they do touch upon all those interesting things but that book was actually written by Joaquin Phoenix and a, a lot of the or a lot of the, the lines that the Joker used or Arthur uses as jokes is actually stuff from his, his book and he says he'll never... No, that book's for him. Like He's never going to release it or talk about it. But I thought, yeah, what method acting there? Yeah, he's a special, special actor, isn't he? Uh, and he kind of... he, he You know, Joaquin Phoenix is a little bit crazy. Um, he's did an interview with the New York Times that was a little bit uh, combative, understandably, because <laughs> of the... Uh, you know, nature of this film, the way it's got panned by some people about the portrayal of the Joker. But um, I think it takes a special, a little bit of madness to kind of come up and do perform so convincingly. Um, and mm. after seeing him do it, you can't really think of anyone who could better it, you know? Um, so, and when you can, you know, compare it to some of his other roles in his career, I just think... I know I'm a 
I'm a fanboy of Joaquin, but I, I just I think he's the best actor around, and every movie he does is a mark of quality for me. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, he's one of those guys which, you know, for better or worse, sometimes doesn't necessarily get the limelight for right reasons, whether that's because he's talking about being a gangster rapper or being notoriously difficult to work within the media, which means if you're not if you're not friendly to the media, the media aren't friendly to you, unfortunately, and that means they are always looking to portray you in a way that you don't want to be portrayed, and hence why he's had to deal with some of the interviews that he's probably had to deal with. And Todd Phillips is probably in that similar mould at the moment. He's coming out and making comments like, I quit comedy because of woke culture, and it's like... Dude, like, if you're if you're literally saying I've stopped doing this because people are getting too outraged in a negative way, then why 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 poke the bear? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you generally believe that, why fucking do it then? Do you know what I mean? So, and say that in a world where we've got films like Booksmart, Crazy Rich Asians, and stuff like that. So, like, that's 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 not true, obviously. So, um, he needs to probably just shut up before he he really gets himself into a scandal. But um, let's talk about Todd Phillips. So. Don't judge a book by its previous shitty comedies because I thought he's done a masterstroke here. All this talk about being pretentious and too artsy, you're only saying that because it is Todd Phillips. If this, like I mentioned in the, in the spoiler-free intro, if that was Scorsese or you know Nolan or someone like that, you'd be saying this is a masterclass. There's beauty, there's there's something tranquil about all of it. I, I generally think Todd Phillips has done an amazing film here. Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, especially when you look at some of the uh, other things he's been a part of, it's been a very varied career, to be honest. I'm just looking through some of the movies. Obviously, he had something to do with Borat. He had something to do with A Star Is Born. All kinds of all kinds of movies. Frat House, um, Project X, <laughs> Road Trip, obviously. Those kind of noughties comedies which we grew up with. Uh, the Hangover, which mm, not so such a fan of, but yeah, I think don't judge a book by its cover is is a good shout for this one. And I think actually you can't. I think uh, some of the critics have have judged a book by its cover and haven't quite appreciated uh, the kind of what he's tried to do here. For me. Nah, completely. You know, um, I'm, this is my film of the year, so I'm, I'm always going to be banging this drum at the moment. Anyway, so I think that's it. Is there anything else you wanted to, to cover in this? I think let's go through my notes. <laughs> Talked about the stairs scene, the ending. Oh, one thing about the ending, I, I like the way it ended, and I like the way it played. That's life, and the lyrics are actually fucking haunting to that song. Now, if you look at, if you read that, just go Google it. You know. Not, right now if you can google the lyrics to uh, that's life by frank sinatra and then look at that film through the con sorry look at those lyrics through the context of this film arthur's literally bred this into his life and he you know he's, he believes that his time is about to come because he's had all these different things that have happened but you've got to deal with it and and the fact that that ties in with murray you know he always he finishes off his show by going that's life and there's there's something you know beautiful about all that but the ending, the, the one thing I didn't like about the ending was that it has left it open. And I don't want a sequel. I don't want a spin-off. I don't want anything more in that world. I think it's it's perfect the way... What they've done here is, is perfect. Don't, don't ruin it by now doing a bunch of sequels or trying to tie that into somehow with 
with the new movie they're doing with Robert Pattinson as Batman because it's just it's not going to work and you're going to shoehorn and that's what got you in this mess to begin with because you shoehorned in all that Justice League stuff because Man has still done so well so don't don't be drawn in by the dollar signs this is going to make this is tracking very well by the way it's I think it's done I think it's going to do over 150 in its opening quite easily um, in America which is you know insane um so and you know let's not forget China and the the lure that this character will have globally so this is going to make money I I wouldn't be surprised if it makes like I'm going to call it now it's going to make 850 I'm going to go with 851 (laughs) but uh, yeah my whole my whole thing is that that ending where he's skipping away and uh, and here's the interesting thing as well, right? Like, where does this? Where is this film? Is this film set entirely in Arkham? And he's regaling to to that woman, or is this a film that follows a timeline? I, you know, it's fascinating because I don't know, and I, don't, I think there's meant to be lots of different answers, and that's that's great. I love films like that. I don't feel like it lends itself to a sequel or was po- uh, you know suggesting uh, anything like that. I just don't think you you just don't kill off that character because that makes no sense. Um, so yeah, I think as a standalone movie, I think it's great, and I think that's all it is. I can't imagine they're going to make another one. Mm-hmm. I think maybe because this is this might as well be called Taxi Driver has a baby with Joker <laughs> because that's what this film really is, right? And remember the end of Taxi Driver where he shoots himself, and the last thing, the last scene you see in that film is actually a, a flashback of when he meets the girl for the first time by his car right and it's the reason why is because that's kind of like the last moment he was happy ever in his life and that's why um that's the last thing he sees when he dies here you go what happens if he died when that car crash happens and for him he's just happy regaling his story to someone and that's his moment of of sort of tranquility I don't know, but I generally thought because he was basically reenacting that on the sofa, I thought it was going to get on the on the on the sofa on the talk show and blow his brains out. But yeah, he, they they go in that different thing. That speech went on a bit too long, didn't it? Maybe I think you've got an active imagination, Flinty, but I do like it. <laughs> anyway, well, I'll do my fan fiction uh, and take put my tin hat foil hat on. So I think we've we've talked that one to death. So anyway, what is your view? Get in contact with us on Twitter at TalkFilmyToMe. Do it through DMs though, just so in case people who do follow us who haven't seen this yet, we don't want to obviously let any cats out of any bags. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this, then just maybe, just maybe you'll be willing to go a little bit further. Click on that like, follow, subscribe. And if you like us even more, click on the review buttons that you've got on your various podcasting platforms. We've got a really nice score at the moment, and we like to think that's because we're good, but also it might be because people aren't commenting. So please comment as well. Give us feedback. We always look for ways to improve. John, my boy, how can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Descamento. Next week, we'll be back with our review of Gemini Man. We'll talk about Between Two Ferns on Netflix. There's a bunch of other stuff and an announcement as well. Stay filmy. That's life. We're down in the basement. We'll lock the cellar door and baby. Talk filmy to me.